Please stand for the reading of Scripture. Our text today is from Psalm 121. Hear now the Word of God. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. You may be seated. Our text today is uh, very famous, one of the most famous psalms in the Psalter. And it's situated among a group of 15 psalms uh, from Psalm 120 to 134 that in Hebrew is called the Shirah La'amot, but in English that means the songs of ascent. There is a long-standing tradition that claims these psalms were likely sung possibly in sequence by Hebrew pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem to the great worship festivals. Topographically, uh, Jerusalem was the highest city in Palestine. And so all who traveled there spent much of their time ascending. But the ascent was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing spiritual maturity, what the Apostle Paul would later describe in Philippians 3.14 as, quote, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, end quote. Faithful Hebrews would have made this trip three times per year. The Hebrews were a people whose salvation had been accomplished in the Exodus, whose identity had been defined at Mount Sinai, and whose preservation had been assured in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. As such people, they regularly climbed the road to Jerusalem to worship. They refreshed their memories of God's saving ways at the Feast of Passover in the spring. They renewed their commitments as God's covenanted people at the Feast of Pentecost in early summer. They responded as a blessed community to the best that God had for them in the harvest at the Feast of Tabernacles in the autumn. They were a redeemed people. These foundational realities were preached and taught and praised at all the annual feasts. Between feasts, the people lived these realities back home in daily discipleship until the time came to go up again to the mountain city as pilgrims to renew their covenant. This picture of the Hebrews singing these 15 psalms of ascent as they left their routines of discipleship and made their way from towns and villages, farms and cities, as pilgrims up to Jerusalem has become embedded in the Christian devotional imagination. It is our best background for understanding life as a faith journey. In this sense, we understand that we have ascended to Zion even today, to meet with the living God and to be reminded of the covenant reality that binds us to him in Christ and to renew our covenant with him. And we will return to our respective spheres 
where we are obligated to live out that reality with renewed vigor and resolve. The Bible is saturated with the image of a journey. Wherever we turn, we read of individuals making journeys of all kinds. Perhaps the greatest of those was the 40-year journey of the people of Israel from their harsh captivity in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. Elsewhere, we read of Abraham stepping out in faith to lead the land of his ancestors and go to a place chosen by God. Abraham did not know where he was going, but he knew with whom he would be traveling. And this seems to be, uh, this seems like it was apparently good enough for him. We read of the pilgrims to Jerusalem, as in our text today, lifting up their eyes to the hills, daunted by the thought of the mountains they must climb and the harsh conditions they might face. And yet they were consoled by the thought of the presence of God and his protection as they traveled. We read of the people of Jerusalem returning home after their long period of exile in Babylon. The New Testament relates how the earliest term used to refer to Christians in Acts 9-2 was those who belong to the way. They were to be seen as travelers on their way to the new Jerusalem. We know that our Lord Jesus from a very early age traveled to Jerusalem for the annual feast. We read about this in Luke 2. We continue to identify with the first disciples who, as in Mark 10.32 tells us, were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed Jesus, they were afraid. We also are puzzled and a little afraid like these disciples. For there is unknown territory on this journey. And there are fearful specters to be met ahead. Singing the songs of ascent is a way both to express the amazing grace and to quiet the anxious fears. Eugene Peterson refers to this collection of psalms as, quote, an old dog-eared songbook, end quote. Reflecting on his long stint in pastoral ministry, Peterson remarks that, quote, in the pastoral work of training people in discipleship and accompanying them in pilgrimage, I have found, tucked away in the Hebrew Psalter, an old dog-eared songbook. I have used it to provide continuity in guiding others in the Christian way and directing people of faith in the conscious and continuous effort that develops into maturity in Christ. There are no better songs for the road, he says, for those who travel the way of faith in Christ, a way that has so many continuities with the way of Israel. Since many, though not all, essential items in, the Christ, in Christian discipleship are incorporated in these songs, they provide a way to remember who we are and where it is we're going. If we learn to sing them well, they can be a kind of vade mecum, a guidebook of, of sorts for a Christian's daily walk, end quote. Psalm 121 is particularly suited for this. Charles Spurgeon liked to call this particular psalm the Traveler's Hymn, which is fitting. Of all the psalms in this group, this is the only one that has the particular designation in Hebrew in the editorial note, a song for the ascents, not just a song of ascents like the others, but rather a song for the ascents. Although almost all English versions do not translate the editorial note to reflect this little detail, it's there. And bearing this in mind uh, and the content, taking the content of the psalm into consideration, 
this distinctive title perhaps marked it out for special use on the journey to Jerusalem. And as we've seen already, thinking of the Christian life as a journey through the world offers us a vivid and helpful way of visualizing our life of faith. It reminds us that we are going somewhere. The pilgrim is not still, nor is he going in circles. He is on the way to the new Jerusalem. This encourages us as pilgrims to think ahead and to look forward with anticipation to the joy of milestones and also at the final arrival. But we know that the pilgrimage does more than just lead us to the goal of the journey. The journey is itself a process that enables us to grow and develop as we press on to the goal, but not without great difficulty. Psalm 121 outlines three possibilities for harm to those traveling on the ascending road to Jerusalem. For the Christian, that would be the pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem. Traveling by foot, a person can at any moment step on a loose stone and sprain his ankle. Traveling by foot under the hot sun, a person can become faint with sunstroke. And a person traveling for a long distance on foot under the pressures of fatigue and anxiety anxiety, can become emotionally ill, which was described by ancient writers as moonstroke. Interestingly, our word lunacy derives from the Latin word luna, meaning moon. Shout out to uh, Mrs. Sal today. We can translate this list of dangers for our own setting. Provisions for law and order can break down with frightening ease and speed. Disease can arise suddenly and break through our pharmaceutical defenses unexpectedly, even on a large scale, like a pandemic, causing great confusion and upsetting the practices of daily life once thought to define a comfortable and, quote, stable existence. An accident in an automobile, from the top of a ladder, on an athletic field, can without warning interrupt our carefully laid plans. War can erupt, carrying implications for life as we know it far further than our imaginations could have taken us. We take precautions by learning safety rules, fastening our seatbelts, taking out insurance policies, and buying more firearms and stockpiling ammo. But we cannot guarantee security, and deep down, we know it. We don't dispense with either the promise of this psalm nor our experience with failure. We embrace both of them. We learn to wrestle with the tension, for biblical truth often lies in such tension. This is the balance between tough questions of life and deep answers of faith. This is one of the reasons why Psalm 121 is particularly suited for the setting of Lent. It puts contemporary readers in touch with our own anxieties and our own authentic neediness, making it more likely that our Lenten journeys will be less about ourselves and our own accomplishments, like maybe what we might be able to man- what we might manage to give up for four weeks, and more about our fundamental dependence upon God and our need, desperate need, for God's help. On a gut level, we know what it means to lift our eyes to the hills in search for help. Inevitably, we have all made this cry at challenging times in our lives. 
Western culture in the 21st century promotes individualism and self-sufficiency, but at some point we all have to face the reality that we simply cannot be our own gods. If we try to be our own gods, life will remind us otherwise sooner or later. We will have to ask for help. Some people feel closest to God in the midst of good times, when everything seems to be going well. These people get easily discouraged when they hit challenges. Others, however, find a greater closeness to God in the dark and challenging times of life. This is because their protective guard comes down, and they have no choice but to recognize their place in their relationship to the Almighty. They have no choice but to acknowledge the limits to their own power. And it's a humbling experience. There is a blessing given in the moments when we become aware of our own powerlessness. In a sense, these are not so much moments in which we are more powerless than we otherwise were. But rather, these are moments when we are more informed than usual about how little power we actually possess. These are moments when our illusion of power is stripped away and we are blessed to suffer the reality that we need help beyond ourselves. It is a grace. Though it is an uncomfortable realization, it is a blessing to be able to live in the truth, after all, and it provides a sure footing for our sincere cry to the Lord for help. Psalm 121 begins at this point. There is a need for help with the realization of need. It opens with the question, from where will my help come? The rest of the psalm is a response to this initial question. The first verse is a preparation for all that is to follow. Without a moment's hesitation, the psalmist proclaims an answer to the question saying, My help comes from Yahweh, from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The psalmist then goes on to meditate on the ways in which the Lord is our keeper and is worthy of our trust. This is our model as we learn how to do the same. A significant theme of this psalm is the fact that the Lord is a keeper with various forms of the Hebrew verb to keep appearing five times in verses three through eight. It's a key word in this psalm. The thought builds up from the description of the Lord as my helper in verse one, which is repeated in verse two and then amplified in later verses of the psalm under the motif of the Lord as our keeper. Consider in the beginning, the pilgrim's need for help, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Perhaps a better rendering of the question would be, does my help come from these hills? Is my help in these mountains? The implicit answer is, no, it does not. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. As the pilgrim comes within sight of his destination, he, see, he sees the hills surrounding Jerusalem. The person set on the way of faith gets into trouble, looks around for help, and asks a question. Does my help come from these mountains? What would this person be seeing as they looked to the hills? We tend to think of sort of an artistic rendering. Uh, we, t- we, we, think of, uh, we think of this in scenic terms often. A weary pilgrim lifting up his eyes to the sun setting behind a beautiful mountainscape. I've had the privilege of experiencing the thrill of some novice mountaineering. 
In my few experiences, the journey upward begins at about 4.30 in the morning. And I can remember, in the times I've been able to, to do this, the beauty and the grandeur of the sun rising out of an alpine forest and revealing the majestic mountains in the horizon toward which I was ascending. Hours later, I received my reward, the views from a 14,000-foot mountain summit overlooking the western slope of the Rocky Mountains is breathtaking and sublime. The air is cool and fresh in the middle of the summer. But is this what our pilgrim sees when he looks to the hills? A beautiful mountain scene? No doubt the hilly terrain of Palestine has its own, albeit very different, sort of beauty and majesty, as all mountains do. But is this all the pilgrim would see when he lifted his eyes to the hills, a beautiful mountainscape? During this time, uh, the, the time that the psalm was written and sung by the ancient Hebrews, Palestine was overrun with popular pagan worship. Much of this religion was practiced on hilltops, naturally. Shrines were set up. Groves of trees were planted. Sacred prostitutes even, both male and female, were provided for travelers. Persons were lured to the shrines to engage in acts of worship that would enhance the fertility of the land, would provide sexual pleasure, and would promise protection from evil. There were uh, nostrums, spells, and enchantments against all the perils of the road. Do you fear the sun's heat on your journey? Go to the sun priest and pay for protection against the sun god. Are you fearful of the malign influence of the moonlight? Well, go to the moon priestess and buy an amulet. Are you haunted by the demons that can use any pebble under your feet to trip you up unawares? Well, go to the shrine and learn the magic formula to ward off the mischief. Whence shall my help come? Is it going to come from Baal? Will it come from Asherah? From the sun priest? Is it going to come from the moon priestess? This was for sure a shabby lot. Immoral, diseased, drunken, frauds and cheats, all of them. The legends of Baal are full of the tales of his orgies, the difficulty of arousing him from a drunken sleep to get his godly attention. Elijah taunting the priests of Baal is the evidence for this. Remember when Elijah asked, you don't suppose that he has overslept and needs to be woken up, do you? But shabby or not, these religious charlatans promised help along the way. A traveler would be attracted by their offer, no doubt. This is the kind of thing the Hebrew pilgrim would have seen when he raised his eyes to the hills. And it is what the disciples, what disciples like us still see. A person of faith encounters trials or tribulation, is confused and cries out for help. What do we do? We lift our eyes And what do you know? Offers for help, instant and numerous, appear everywhere. Does my help come from these mountains? No, says the psalmist. My help comes from Yahweh, the Lord, who made heaven and earth and these mountains. The covenant God of Israel is the pilgrim's keeper, whose creative power as maker of heaven and earth is a surety of his ability to help his people. This phrase, 
uh, he who made heavens and earth was clearly a standard one in Hebrew poetry. It's all over the Psalms. I could list a whole bunch for you. I'm not going to do, do that, but it's, it's all over the Psalms. We even find it recurring in Isaiah. The maker of all things is able to stoop down to meet the needs of his people. Think about the juxtaposition of that. The Lord, the one who made these mountains, is the source of my help on this journey that I'm on right now. It's uh, remarkable. In both Old and New Testaments, um, excuse me, the maker of all things is able to stoop down to meet the needs of his people. And in both Old and New Testaments, they appeal to his ability to do this repeatedly. Um, If you read the book of Isaiah, this is a theme that arises out of Isaiah, especially in the later chapters, 40 through the end of the book. Um, We see this all over Scripture, certainly in the story of Acts that Pastor Booth has been preaching through. We see the mighty acts of God stooping down to be the help and provider of his people. Continue, And that's still our story today. Christian history bears that out as well. The psalmist, though, reminds us that the Lord comes with some credentials, having made heaven and earth. Not a bad thing to be able to put on your resume. Now consider in verses 3 and 4 the pilgrim's safety. In the next breath, the psalmist goes from the celestial realm to the immediate physical realm. He says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Not like Baal. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Will the singing pilgrim now stumble at this stage of the journey? Assuredly not. For he has a guard who does not sleep. And with emphasis, he says that his feet will not be allowed to slip. We see the same thing in other Psalms. Psalm 17.5, for example. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. This expression probably encompasses the idea that God is alert to any of the dangers on the journey, watching his every step with microscopic precision. God has a particular interest in every move of the faithful pilgrim. Every pebble under his foot is under his watch care. Elijah on Carmel could taunt Baal's prophets that he was asleep. But the creator God is always awake. He will never doze or sleep. Baal took long naps, and one of the jobs of his priests was to wake him up when someone needed his attention. And they were not even always successful. How different the true God is from Baal. Consider the pilgrim's protection in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord was not just the keeper of all Israel, but in speech... To a single speaker, he could be spoken of as your keeper. Calling God a shade is probably a shortened form of the expression we also know. Uh, the shadow of your wings, we read that in other Psalms. This is likely the, the, same, the same notion, the shade that wings provide and the shelter that they provide. Of course, we have that also, that nurturing, motherly uh, uh, view of, of what that is symbolizing. The right hand in these verses, this verse suggests the position of the defender or protector. The right hand was a place of prominence. And the psalmist knows that his God is as near to him as that. You are under the arm 
of your protector. By day and by night he would be kept safe from any harm. Sun and moon being images that express not only the dangers that they contain, but also the entire scope of daily life. Night or day, the Lord is your helper. The promise of this psalm, and both Hebrew and Christians, Hebrews and Christians have always read it this way, is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, we'll be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. Our sanctification, our spiritual maturity is in his hands. We have to get this. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. In fact, if that were the case, why would we even need to call out to God for help? What it promises is preservation from all the evil in them. The scriptures are replete with examples of solid faith encountering intense troubles. Paul, who knew this well, writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That is the promise of Psalm 121. Consider in the last two verses, 7 and 8, the preservation of the pilgrim. And this is of such comfort to us. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This song closes by picturing Yahweh as an eternal keeper of his people. In the midst of a sinful and dangerous world, he is able to keep us from falling. This, this uh, reminds me of the benediction in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. God will guard amidst all the varied experiences of life, your coming and your going. And ultimately, he will bring his called ones to glory as we know from Romans 8. As present-day pilgrims, you and I rejoice that Israel's keepers and ours is still the one true and living God. He continues to fulfill this role toward his people, his purposes now revealed and completed in Jesus Messiah. We have every reason, as we are faithful to him, to trust that he will care for us and protect us. But having an eternal keeper is really a two-way street. For all that we gain, we must first give ourselves to the one who has offered us the protection. Remember, we are in covenant with God. We have responsibilities and obligations. We are not simply passive in this sense. We gain protection, but we lose a sense of total dependence in ourself. Uh, excuse me, total independence in ourself. In other words, the singular theme of Psalm 121 may not sound like great news to everybody when we start talking about this. It may sound like an enormous encroachment on our lives. 
What a shock this must be to one who thinks they are keeping their own lives safe. They balance their own checkbooks. They stay on top of their own medical appointments. They do their own shopping. And they generally take personal responsibility for their own well-being and, and that of their family. The idea that they have a keeper who watches over them and protects them may be tough to understand, let alone to accept. It is hard to accept that the Lord is my keeper, as hard as it is to accept that the Lord loves me. But these two facts are inextricably intertwined. That is the key to understanding, this is the key to understanding not merely what the Lord does for us in keeping us, but why he does it. God's love is the very foundation of his trustworthiness. God's love, God loves us, and therefore, on that basis, God keeps us. This assurance of the Lord's protective presence does not mean that life will be free of danger or difficulty. Rather, believers will be protected through the struggles of life. This is a glorious promise all believers will do well to remember and to cling to, one we often forget. But it also comes with a limitation. It is only when believers are obeying God in their respective activities that they can be confident in praying for his protection on the basis of texts like Psalm 121. Assurance of divine protection cannot be expected when people live in disobedience. The pilgrim is the one who is secure and is, by simple definition, one who is ascending Godward, not going astray. To the unfaithful, there is no promise of protection. The New Testament reiterates the truth of the divine presence protecting faithful believers wherever they go. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our surety. This is the promise we have as pilgrims. We read that the Lord is with us from now into eternity. He will never leave us nor forsake us as we make our journey through life to the temple on Mount Zion, where we are even now joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The great danger of Christian discipleship, says Eugene Peterson, is that we should have two religions. Two religions. A glorious biblical Sunday gospel that sets us free from the world, that in the cross and resurrection of Christ makes eternity alive in us, a magnificent gospel of Genesis and Romans and Revelation and all the scriptures, and then an everyday religion that we make do with during the week. We save the Sunday gospel for the big crises in life, in, in our lives. Uh, for the mundane trivialities, though, the times when our foot slips on a loose stone or the heat of the sun gets too much for us or the influence of the moon gets us down, we use the everyday religion of consumerism, the huckstered wisdom of talk show celebrities, or the endless banter of social media chatter. 
We know that God created the universe and has accomplished our eternal salvation in Christ. But we can't believe that he condescends to watch the soap opera of our daily trials and tribulations. So we purchase our own remedies for that. To ask him to deal with what troubles each of, uh, what troubles us each day is like asking a famous surgeon to put iodine on a scratch. But Psalm 121 says that the same faith that works in the big things also works in the little things. The God of Genesis 1, who brought light out of darkness, is also the God of this day who keeps you from all evil. The same power is behind both of those. But we have a hard time believing that. It's easier for us to believe, actually, that God brought the world out of nothing and spoke light into existence than the fact that he's watching my every step today. The Christian life is a pilgrimage of ascent to God. In our going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everybody else walks on. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. We shop in the same grocery stores. Our citizens under the same governments. We pay the same prices for gasoline. We fear the same dangers. We are subject to the same pressures. We get the same distresses and we are buried in the same ground. So what's different? The difference is that each step we take, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God and his spirit. We know that we are ruled by God who does all things well. And therefore, dear Christian, no matter what doubts you endure or what accidents you experience, the Lord will keep you from every evil. He guards your very soul. And so we can sing the truth of Luther's hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his, triumph, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And because we can say that and sing that, we can also pray these words of Philip Doddridge. Through each perplexing path of life, our wandering footsteps guide. Give us each day our daily bread and raiment fit provide. O spread thy covering wings around till all our wanderings cease. And at our Father's loved abode, our souls arrive in peace. Amen. Lord of cloud by day and fire by night, our hands clutch the pilgrim's staff. Our march is Zionward. Our eyes are set toward the coming of the Lord. Our hearts are in your hands without reserve. You have created us. You have redeemed us, renewed us, captured us, and conquered us. Keep our hearts from every opposing foe. Crush in it every rebel lust. Mortify every treacherous passion and annihilate every earthborn desire. You, O God, are the very perfection of all perfections. All intellect is derived from thee. Our scanty rivulets flow from your unfathomable fountain. You are worthy of an adoration greater than our dull hearts can yield. Yet you call forth from the mouths of your children songs of praise and songs of joy. Invigorate our love that it may rise worthily to thee. And now, O God...
Send us forth once again on our pilgrim path through the world with all the confidence and of the protective providence and presence of the Spirit of Christ. For He, our leader, has walked this road before us and has assured us with the seal of His love that nothing can separate us from Him. May we walk through this coming week as though this were true. God, help us. Amen. Amen. And now receive this benediction of the Lord from Psalm 96. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen.